Well, good morning. <clears throat> Thank you for joining us for worship here at Emmanuel Bible Church. Uh, we're thankful um, that you have, uh, you have come on a, on, on a Lord's Day uh, to sing His praise, to recognize uh, God's goodness in the giving of His Son, Jesus Christ, for our salvation, and, um, and even to gather around the Scriptures to hear instruction about what it means to be something so particular as a Christian husband. Um, I find it interesting, right, that the Scriptures and God Himself um, speaks not just in generalities, but speaks down to the very things that we are. I mean, God can speak generally and say, hey, in the, for the most part, just be honest, do the best you can, and I'll meet you on the other side. Right? Just kind of give us basics, blanket statements. But He gives us direction and instruction and how to live a life that is worthy of the gospel to which he has called us, meaning living a life that is worthy of the very salvation that has been so priceless and expensive that he has paid the infinite price of his own son to rescue us. And then to say, now live in light of that gospel reality. Don't just have a gospel message that rescues you, Right? That keeps you from hell. And then that's it. Live however you want. No, instead, let the gospel not just be the message that brings you in, but is the motivation and the means by which we transform and change our lives. So that we might impact others in a way that is Christ-like, that is God-like, that is honoring to our Master and our Savior. I mean, that's the point. And so when we get to this portion of Ephesians, we've been teaching through Ephesians, we have encountered a, a number of wondrous things. At the beginning of this chapter, chapter 5, it began by saying, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us, gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Later, it, sp it spoke of how to walk in a manner that, that befits this gospel so that we might be careful how we walk, not as unwise men, but as individuals making the most of our time because these days are troublesome. They are evil. Not to be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Not to be debauched, but to, to figure out how to be filled by the Spirit so that we might walk in a way that honors Him. And from that, from those instructions of what it looks like to live as a Christian in this world, we encounter right, these commands of what a Christian wife looks like. These commands of what a Christian husband looks like. And that's what we looked at to this morning. Um, a Christian husband's love. According to Ephesians 5, verses 25 through 30. Let me read that for us. And I'll say a few words and then we'll dive into our passage. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would open our eyes to the scriptures, that we might see great things there, that our hearts, Lord, 
would receive the word implanted and it might bear fruit in our lives. Father, I realize the, the particular focus of a Christian husband might make uh, our sisters in the room think that this is not important. Or maybe our single guys in the room thinking that this is for later. I pray that you would open our eyes to see that whatever area of life you have called us to, it is meant to be lived in a way that honors our Savior. It is meant to be gospel-touched. Lord, help us, especially the men in this room, recognize that the priority of all of our human relationships is love. It's not rule. It's not order. It's love. If we recognize this, and we recognize that we walk after the pattern of our Savior, Lord, we trust that that would increase, deepen our affection for one another and for you. And that that would transform not just our lives individually, but our families, our relationships, our church, and our communities. Or teach us to walk in a manner that is like unto your son, an impossible task, but an excellent ambition. So we might please him who has demonstrated the truthfulness of all of this already in dying on the cross for us. May your gospel be displayed in our relationships, in our leadership, in our love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as we look to this particular passage, I want us to understand that we could think about marriage in a couple of extremes, right? We could think about marriage as this extreme of like the most wonderful, idyllic, this is the thing I'm trying to get to. I, I imagine many of the singles would be, right, kind of enraptured with that particular view of marriage. Can't wait for my wedding day. This is the way it's going to look. Can't wait, you know, to have a honey by my side, right? Whatever it is, like we have an ambition to think that this is like, this is like the, the, the cherry on top. This is the pinnacle of human relationships. And to some degree, that is accurate. The intimacy of a husband and wife, and we'll talk about that in a bit, right, is probably the most significant human relationship that we should have. That's what Genesis 2.24 intimates. That's, that's exactly the design of marriage. But having said that, the other extreme is to take marriage as kind of, you know, less grand. Kind of the necessary evil. You, you, might, you might encounter this with those that might be a little bit more jaded after maybe decades of marriage or individuals who think that, that, that marriage is more focused on the husband and what he receives than a, a, a partnership, a love relationship as Christ has demonstrated it to be. This is what I mean by that, right? Um, uh, is a story I was, I was trying to find, I couldn't find, but Wayne Song had told me this story years ago, and I thought it was so cool, but Norman Sch Schwarzkopf, you guys remember that individual, right? General during the Gulf War. He met, um, I think it was a Muslim leader or someone, and, and, and in a conversation, um, he, the, the Muslim man asked him, if you had to rescue your mother, your wife, or your children, and you can only rescue one of those, right? Who would you rescue? And Norman, as an older man, said, oh, I, I think I'd rescue my children, right? They're, they haven't lived long. I, I want them to have a future, etc." That's probably where most of us would land, right? That's the way that we think about, like, you know, I've lived long. My mom has lived longer, right? My children, etc." And then um, the interesting reaction was, no, um, I can always get a new wife and more kids. You can never replace your mother. 
It's interesting, right? A different perspective, a different worldview. But a worldview that, that is not that uncommon in the history of the world. In fact, at the time of the writing of this letter to the Ephesian Christians, right, um, the, the Romans and the Greeks, right, this is what they thought of marriage. Demosthenes, he said, we have courtesans for the sake of pleasure. We have concubines for the sake of daily cohabitation. We have wives for the purpose of having children legitimately and of having a faithful guardian for all our household affairs. Yeah, you have people that are for, women that are for your pleasure. You have women that are kind of like your, your partners to talk through life. And then you have the one that kind of manages your home and has legitimate children. And you might go, dude, that's kind of crazy. That's not that crazy. In the history of the world, this is how women have been treated in the concept of marriage. Xenophon said that it was the husband's aim that a wife might see, see as little as possible, hear as little as possible, and ask as little as possible. Amongst the Jewish community, they weren't that much better. In fact, the, the liberal school of Hillel, right? So they're the more liberal guys. The other guys are the much more legalistic guys. Well, the, the Hillel school allowed for a man to divorce his wife for any reason whatsoever. And it gave examples like too much salt in the food or she's become less attractive. I, I think in the, in, the, in the pagan or in the unbelieving world of husband-wife relationships, uh, the husband has had the higher footing. He has had the, the superior place to the degree that our women are often talked about as if, at least in the history of the world, as if they are not just second place, but they are very replaceable, interchangeable. The scriptures speak of the husband and the wife role in the same manner. And we've already read our passage, and the answer is emphatically no. In fact, um, I think as we walk through this particular passage, just two major parts, right? One is there's, uh, there is a call for a Christian husband to love his wife with a Christ-like love. That's verses 25 to 27. And there's an emphasis on the Christ-likeness of that love. And then the second part is verses 28 through 30, that the Christian husband is, is, is charged to love with a one flesh sort of love. And I'll explain that out because uh, it uses language that I think is interesting and helpful to us. But with that kind of backdrop, like marriage is everything. It's romantical and this is all, all we're living for. And the other extreme, that marriage is just interchangeable parts. It's the guy gets what he wants, right? There is a biblical perspective that, that paints a picture of what the marriage relationship has meant, was meant to be from the very beginning of the creation of a man and a woman. And we begin with that concept here, that the Christian husband is charged to love with a Christ-like love in verse 25. In fact, it begins by saying this, husbands, and of course it's speaking to Christian husbands, right? It's speaking to these Christians in the church at Ephesus, and it's saying, you husbands, after speaking to wives about their gracious and loving submission to their husbands. Now it addresses the husband. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So the standard by which he is to love his wife is that of Christ's love for the church. The command is love your wife. 
I, I emphasize that um, not only because that's, that's literally what it says, but because the command of what a husband does first and foremost is love, not rule. You, know, you realize, and I love Peter T. O'Brien. I love Peter T. O'Brien, period. You know, he's a great commentator of the New Testament. But he says of this particular phrase, he says, Paul, interestingly, does not here or elsewhere for that matter ever exhort husbands to rule over their wives. They are nowhere told, exercise your headship. Instead, they are urged repeatedly to love their wives. Isn't that interesting? That if you boil down what is the task of a Christian husband, Christian brother, if you are a husband in this room, what is your primary task? And you say, well, you know, protect the kids, you know, um, I don't know, you know, lead my wife. That's fantastic. I, I think that is. But that, all of that is a subset of this charge to love your wife as Christ loved the church. We talk about this, right? As Christian husbands to Christian husbands, this is an impossible task. None of us can love as Christ loved if we're saying, you know, symmetrically and equally. I cannot die for Kathy's sins, right? I cannot offer propitiation for her. Why? Because I'm a sinner too. There's only one that could save us from our sins, and that is Christ, right? The perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God who could take away sins. So, we are not talking about a doable task. We're talking about something that sets the bar so high that is our aim and our ambition. And in this earthly life, we'll never accomplish that. Nevertheless, so that we define love in our marital relationships properly, husbands, Christian husbands, your rule is love. Right? Your charge is love. And that love is exactly the kind of love that Christ had for his church. It is a sacrificial love. Christ's sacrificial love is emphasized, I think, in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Christ loved the church, the community of believers that would follow him. And in loving the church, he gave himself up for her. It's a reflexive pronoun, and all that means is that he gave himself. Now, that's why our English translates it that way. He, he didn't just give something to the church at arm's distance. Hey, I got something for you. Here, take that, go to your room, enjoy yourself, right? He gave himself up for us. What exactly are we talking about? Well, if you're a Christian in this room, you know exactly what this means, that Christ gave himself up for the church. It means that he died on a cross, after living a perfect life, so that he might pay the price of your sins, that he might take your penalty upon himself, so that your debt of sin might be canceled. Whatever the gospel is, it's not cheap, like cheap handouts. We talk about grace, and we mean that it is a gift. It certainly is. It cannot be earned. It cannot be, right? It cannot be purchased. Um, grace is God's gift to us. But that doesn't mean that the Heavenly Father just kind of winks and goes, oh, oh, that Nam wants to say that sinner's prayer? Okay, then I'm going to wink and pretend he never sinned. No, the, the price of your salvation is extremely high. The price of your salvation, of you being redeemed or cleansed from your sins, is eternally high. 
Christ had to pay for it in full. It is appropriate to say that Christ paid your hell penalty on the cross so that you might be covered in his righteousness. You might be declared righteous, even though you are that sinner. So that's his sacrifice. And that sacrifice has always been motivated by love. It is a definition of love. In fact, we look at a couple passages here. First John, wait, no, we're looking at John 15, 13 first. And it says this, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. As Jesus is explaining what love looks like, he is saying the greatest love you will encounter is that someone to lay down their life for someone else that they love. And of course, he's saying this in, in anticipation of the fact that he will lay down his life for them. So there is no greater love. It is the epitome of love that is displayed in the gospel in Christ's death and his willing sacrifice of his own life. His taking the wrath of the Father, right? Him taking hell upon himself so that your penalty might be paid in full and that you might be declared righteous by a holy, just, heavenly Father. 1 John 4.10 says, And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. As God defines love, he says that the apex of love and the defining way of understanding it is not how much you know, it makes your heart flutter. Or how fast like your, your, your pace, your, your post increases because you're so excited. It's not emotional exclusively. It is meant to be defined by the willing sacrifice of Christ to be the propitiation, the full payment of the wrath of a holy God because of the penalty of our sins. So that kind of love, the kind of love that bears that kind of sacrifice that is the model for a Christian husband. What that tells you immediately and clearly is that, that the love of a Christian husband, as defined here in Ephesians 5, is absolutely incompatible with a self-serving, overbearing, demanding, lorded over, right, and being the boss of our wives and our children attitude in marriage. In fact, as we unpack more and more of what God's word says about the Christ-like love of a Christian husband, it's not just that we as Christian men find ourselves falling short. We find ourselves often taking the example and the thoughts of the world and thinking that we are the boss, we are the Lord. When in fact, our Lord demonstrated a sacrificial love that is so unlike us. Anything that is less then Christ-like love, right, modeled by a Christian husband, anything less than that um, is unworthy of the name of Christ. It's not Christian. Self-serving husbands are an abomination as far as Christian marriage is concerned. Christ-like sacrificial love is selfless, unwavering, and unapologetically exhaustively willing to lay down his life for the sake of those that he loves. It, it's not romantical, right? And I'm not saying you can't be romantical. That, that's probably a good thing, right? 
it's not equal, meaning let's, let's make a deal. Like, let me do this, you do this. I do this for you, you do this for me. And I'm only willing to do this if you, if you kind of, you know, do your role. You're not doing your part, I'm not doing my part. Can you imagine if Christ treated us like that right now? You know what I mean? And if he said to us, okay, Nam, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've paid for the penalty of your sins up to this point, but we're going 50-50 on this, you know? You do, you do right. If you do wrong, then I'm not going to do my part, you know? Like, if, if, you, if you want to keep messing around like that, you, you want to forget about me through your daily life, I'm going to forget about you, you know? Oh, you didn't do your quiet time? How about I drop a rock on your foot, right? Like, on and on. Like, what if it was tit for tat? What if Christ our Savior treated us that way? For all of our sin and failings regularly, His patience and amazing divine love for us is immense, eternal, infinite. Well, that, that's the model. Not, not one that we will accomplish, but one that we are as Christian men to strive towards. His love is sacrificial. His love is sanctifying. Look at verse 26 and 27. Gives us a, um, three purpose clauses there. and They're all followed by the word that, right? Verse 26 says that, Right? So in other words, this, this, explains, um, this explains to us uh, how he loves us, how Christ has loved the church and gave himself up for her. Right? It gives us the purpose or the goal that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Number two, uh, verse 27, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. And third, that she might be holy and without blemish. See, there's an interesting and unfortunate notion that what love looks like is absolute tolerance. If you love me, then you just accept that I, I, I'm, you know, that I'm, I'm going to punch my face and you're going to punch your face too, right? You know, if you love me, all right, you'll let me do whatever I want. Like that love is so magnanimous that it, it fails to confront or to think about what is good or long-term healthy, as if it would overlook sin and selfishness and would tolerate anything because that's what unconditional love is like. God's love is not like that, right? Christ's love is not like that. Godly love, Christ-like love, is sanctifying. It means that the godly husband, if he loves his wife, then he will seek, as Christ loves the church, he will seek her spiritual well-being, her purity, her righteousness, Right? And all of that for the sake of the pleasure of our Savior and our Master. In, in the same way, um, you know, I, I failed to mention it last week, but sisters, if you are wives, your submission to your husband, you, you should already know that, doesn't abdicate your responsibility as a Christian sister. There are times where you might have to right, confront your husband, to challenge him. To, to, to speak against something that he's struggling with or that he's sinning about. Godly love, Christ-like love, is a sanctifying love. It has an intention, a goal, a purpose. And here's the threefold. The first that he mentions is that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Before we get to that second part that could be a little bit confusing, focus on that word sanctify. Christ purpose in his love for his church is that he might sanctify the church. It means to set apart. It's a word that can be translated holy, right? 
Like holify. You want to holify the church? That's the word sanctify, right? It's to set aside. And Christ desires to set aside his bride, the church, right? Having cleansed her so that she might be presentable and appropriate as his bride. That, that for in God's eyes, that she might be washed, set apart, different from what every other sinner might be. This set aside mindset is supposed to be mirrored in that unique, uh, personal, and exclusive relationship that a husband has with his wife. There's no human-to-human relationship that is more intimate than the, the, the love between a, a, a husband and his wife. Only our relationship with Christ is more intimate, more personal, um, and eternal. Can I, maybe, maybe this is a good place to drop in a, a singular note for our single people. Marriage is not the culmination of your spiritual journey, right? It's not the most important, significant relationship you have. You might be thinking to yourself, you're struggling with your singleness, like, like, man, I want to be loved. That's understandable. We're built with that as image bearers. We're built and designed to want to love and want to be loved. That is part of us being made in God's image, right? But let me assure you, whether you're married or ever be married or you were married and no longer, whatever it is, whatever circumstance you find yourself, the question you have to ask yourself is, am I loved? And the answer is, Absolutely. By love that is much more intimate and eternal than a human marriage can offer. Marriage ends at your death. In fact, in Matthew 22, right, to the chagrin of many of our young couples, Jesus says very clearly that in the new heavens and new earth, right, in heaven, there will be no marrying or giving of marriage. Marriage is done. That's for this temporal life. And whatever intimacy... Whatever joy, whatever goodness that comes from loving openly, right, and personally and expressively and being loved that way in return, as good as that is, that fails in comparison to love of God for us. The great marriage is the marriage between Christ and his bride, the church. And if you're a Christian in this room, you're part of that. The question, you know, will anyone love me? Christ has already loved you and promises to love you into all of eternity. And then those that are one another's with you, they have that same commitment of love to him, to you, to each other. And let that, let that feed your soul. But back to this. Christ's love was such that he sought to sanctify the church, right? To set that relationship apart so that it would be unique, intimate, personal, but holy for all of eternity. That, that was his goal, his ambition. And then it tells us the means by which that has happened, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. It's an unusual expression and, and it's found so many different and, and kind of unusual interpretations. Let me toss a few away right away. Washing of the water does not, I don't think, refer to baptism. Paul could refer to baptism. That's not, that's not weird, but why would he refer to it that way? He is, he is speaking of a cleansing of his bride, and I think the imagery is that of, of the, the normal kind of preparation for marriage that was part of that, that time period uh, for the Jewish culture. 
The bride would go through a ceremonial washing. I think the husband would too, the husband-to-be, right? Like they would go through that and it's meant to be kind of a, a cleansing of water. In other words, they get themselves ready, right, for this marriage. And in, in here, um, I think the imagery is that Christ is the one that has cleansed her as if she has been washed, as if the church has been washed with water, but that water, the washing of water, is with the word. So well, that, that's kind of interesting, how do you wash with words, you know? Be clean, be clean, be clean, right? Does that, that wash us off, right? Dirt go away, dirt go away, right? No. The idea is that there has been a word, a message, that has brought this cleansing upon us. And I, I think all Paul is saying by this is saying that as, as a beautiful bride gets ready, right, and goes through a ceremonial washing, right, to prepare herself for the marriage to come, so have we been already washed. But we've been washed with the message, with the word of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've been, we've been washed from what we were to what we can now be. We have been cleansed and prepared so that we might be one with our Savior. And all of that has taken place because of the gospel, because of the message, because of the word that rescues us from ourselves and our sinfulness. <clears throat> And delivers to us a perspective of eternity and of living for something that is greater than ourselves. Uh, one of the passages that I wanted to share, it was from 1 Corinthians uh, 6. Really, I wanted to focus in on verse 11 where it says, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is what it's talking about. We've been cleansed, washed right, sanctified by the gospel message and by our salvation. But read the context earlier so that we get the depth of our forgiveness. This is to the Corinthian church, and Paul says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? That's just the fact. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Some of you might read that and go, yeah, amen, man. Those kind of those wackos shouldn't be in the kingdom of God. And then we're shocked by the next phrase. And such were some of you. That list of those sinners, those type of individuals are counted among the Christians in the church of Corinth. And he tells them, you were washed, right? You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Christ lo loves us, but he loves us with a purpose, to set us aside for himself in holiness. And he began that process through the cleansing of the message of the gospel of truth. So we are to live Right? As if that truth, that gospel truth, right, resonates into our daily lives, in our patience, in our graciousness, in our kindness, our love, our forgiveness. Always living in a manner characteristics of God's attitude in saving sinners like us. Christ's example of love is that he loved the church, gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her by the cleansing of cleansing her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, verse 27, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. This is the third 
of those, remember the, the, uh, the, the purpose clauses, right? That he might sanctify her was first, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor is, is second. Oh, I said it's the third, it's the second. All right, so that he might present him, the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. This is just a beautiful kind of uh, expression to say that, that Christ's point in rescuing us from our sin and cleansing us through the gospel message was so that he might present the church to himself in splendor. The term for splendor can be, you know, can be translated glorious. And the idea is that it's this, this glorious beauty. And it pictures this bride being just like this most beautiful thing and that Christ has made her beautiful and has presented her, the church, to himself in splendor. There's no spot, wrinkle, or any such thing, meaning like there's nothing to cling to her that would, that would besmudge her character or her beauty. It, like she is perfect. And this has been his goal, to present herself in her splendid beauty to himself. That to himself, I think, is so interesting. Because whatever else this is talking about, it suggests that Christ's love not only sanctifies, cleanses, beautifies that which is not beautiful, but he does it for himself. He has a, he has a, a self goal, right? I, I almost want to say self-centered, but then that's kind of weird to call the Lord self-centered because we mean that usually in the sinful sense. But it is, it is reflexive. It is back to himself. At the very least, for a Christian husband, it, it suggests to us that an application of that at least should be that when we think of our wives and her growing in spiritual beauty, that is for us too. In other words, that is unto me. Like, like as the church, the bride of Christ, is really meant to be presented to him, the husband. So every husband ought to look at our wives as, you know, she is not perfect, um, like the church currently is not perfect. Um, but just as Christ loves the church, we are to love her. We are to cherish her with the understanding that, that she is exclusively ours. There, that, that is what the one flesh relationship means. We'll talk more about that. But the idea is that she is meant to be your wife, the one wife God has given to you. And just as we exhorted our Christian wives, right, that, man, this is the only guy God has given to you right now, man. You got to hang in there. No, I'm kind of half joking. He's a pretty good guy. We, we ought to be thankful for the uniqueness of the individual that God has given to us. And similarly, our wives are the same. Husbands, you redeem your wife in the sense that you encourage her to think rightly of her great place with you and take delight in the fact that she is yours. She's the one that God has granted to you. Christ himself thinks of the church for the sake of having her with him. And we are to be the same in the same attitude as verse 27, right? The final of the three phrases Right, purpose statements is at the end of verse 27 that she might be holy and without blemish. She is to be beautiful in holiness without blemish. And his intention, Christ's intention in loving the church, loving us, is to see us presented that way. Christian husbands, then, if we're to apply that, that theological truth, we are to value our wives and the beauty 
of them growing in spirituality and holiness and putting away blemish, right? Christ emphasized the beauty of spiritual and moral perfection in that day. So we ought to also emphasize that as the crown, as the joy, as what we define as beauty. Listen, we don't even have to talk about the reality that even the unbelieving world recognizes the unhealthy, you know, body image, you know, um, those kind of issues when it comes to our, our women, our children, our, our daughters, our, our wives. That, we need to redeem that, brothers. Right? There, there should be nothing more beautiful than a woman who fears the Lord, who loves Christ, who honors our Savior. That should be the, the greatest consideration of what defines our sense of beauty. Because this flesh, I know, it looks good, right? But it is slowly and certainly falling apart, right? And I have more wrinkles. I, I didn't always have white hair. I wasn't born with white hair. It just happens to you along the way, right? And your joints start aching. Your skin gets leathery. I mean, we'll stop because there's so much more stuff that we can add on top of that that you might go, oh, man, I can't get over that, that imagery, that truth of what it looks like that we physically age. That's, that's true. But in the age to come and in this age, amongst believers, what is most to be cherished and treasured as beauty is a heart that loves and fears our Savior. It's holiness, right? Um, without blemish. It's sanctification, right? It is growing and set apartness. That's what holiness means. It is growing and putting away sin. That's what be, putting away or being without blemish means. And it is in that sanctifying, growing process that we find the greatest delight in those that we love. Because that's what's beautiful in the eyes of our Lord. And we need to redeem that. That's what counts first. And that's what counts most. So if we think about what it means to love with a Christ-like love, it means exactly that, uh, the sacrificial love like Christ's sacrificial love for us, the Christ-sanctifying love, a love that, that focuses on and exemplifies a desire um, for us to shepherd our children, our wives in particular, to grow in the knowledge of the gospel. And for us to love like Christ means to emphasize those things, um, not to just be nice and bring flowers occasionally. Bring flowers occasionally, man, if that's, if that's what she likes, you know? But I'm just saying, the thing that we need to think about is how does Christ love his church? That is the example. That's the point. It's the gospel saturation of our relationship that Christ is trying to emphasize. Our second point. Don't worry, it's short, right? We are to love with a one flesh type of love. We are to love with a one flesh type of love. And this is what I mean. Verse 28 begins with this. In the same way husbands, the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. Let me say, first of all, that should, it should be translated ought, right? If you have like, a, like an old NASB or one of those more leaning on the literal side of translation, it probably says ought, in the same way husbands ought to love. It, it's a term that means and suggests obligation. It's not like, when we use our English should, it kind of is like that soft-spoken, like, hey, maybe you could do this, you know? Maybe you should do this, right? But it's actually, this is what you ought to do. In the same way, right? In the same way as Christ's love for the church, husbands, 
They ought, it is an obligation. They're obligated to love their wives as their own bodies. That's interesting. As their own bodies. At first, you might think, well, you know, do I really love my body? I mean, yeah, I guess so. I mean, I feed it, right? I let it rest, right? I don't really think much about how I love it. And so maybe I don't need to think much about how I love my wife. I just need to feed her, right? To let her rest. What does it mean that, that husbands should love their wives as their own body? And I think the imagery that it's drawing from is the idea of the greatest commandment, right? In Matthew 22, Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, so they gathered together. These are enemies. These are, you know, these are Democrats and Republicans coming together, coming together to try to trip up the Lord. And one of them is a lawyer, and so the lawyer tests him with a question. Verse 36, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Like, which one, if you have to choose one, right, which one is the greatest? Because see, whatever he says, everyone could like nitpick and go, oh, so you think this other one's not that great, huh? Right, like, so it is a clever way to force you to say something and then to be roundly criticized from all sides. We can all agree that this is a good, excellent tactic. And what the Lord says is he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. If you want to choose one, it's singular. Love God. Love him with all that you are on the inside, with your soul, with your mind, with your intentions, with your motives, with your thought life, all of it. You love the Lord. That's the first and greatest commandment. And then Jesus adds, just so that you can have a little extra, since you thought you were going to trap me, let me just sprinkle a little extra on there for you. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I think in modern day, self-focused, like Western civilization, we like will start to kind of gravitate towards, oh, love neighbor as yourself. Oh, man, I need to love myself so that I can let my neighbor know how they should love me or I can love them as they should love me because I love me. I need to know how to love me. So backwards, right? But Jesus says, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. You fulfill all the law and the prophets. A summary for all the Old Testament. All the word of God can be fulfilled with these two commands. You love the Lord your God with everything that you are. You love your neighbor as yourself. What does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself? Because that influences, and I think that is the reason why Paul uses this vocabulary, that we should love our wives as our own bodies, meaning like as ourselves, as we love and care for ourselves. And I think you add that, right? Keep that in mind. You shall love your neighbor as yourself as the second greatest commandment. And you add to it this, right? Before sin enters into the world, before a, a man or a woman is created, and before there are fathers and mothers or children or anything, before all of that, this is what God says. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The husband-wife relationship we refer to as one flesh. And we, we don't mean that they become one flesh just in a physical sense and in intimacy. We mean emotionally, 
spiritually, that there is no greater human relationship. He's going to leave mom and dad. She's going to leave mom and dad, and they're going to cling to each other as one flesh. So that it is appropriate in a husband-wife relationship to speak of, if you love your wife, that's like loving yourself. She is you, and you are her. Caring for her is the sensibility of caring for yourself or your own. He who loves his wife, and this is the last part of verse 28, loves himself. And I think that's where Paul is punching this home. He's saying, husbands, you ought to love with this one flesh relationship idea. You love her as yourself because she is yours and you are hers. We are united in a one flesh relationship. The point is not, okay, let me think. I want to love myself more. How can I get my wife to love me more? You know, it's not the old adage, you know, what's yours is mine and what's mine is mine, right? It's not the self-focus. Instead, it's to say that what is ours is ours. There is no yours and mine. There is ours. There is no you and versus me. There is us. Loving her is like loving yourself, loving your life, loving what God has given to you in the uniqueness of your living that means that she must be your priority. Your Christian wife or Christian husband, your wife must be your priority above children, above friends, above work, above family, above mothers and fathers. There, there should be no one greater in your, in your life in terms of priority than she who is one flesh with you. Because loving her is like loving yourself. You are one and the same. You are one flesh. Finally, cherish her as your own. Verse 29 and 30. Verse 29 and 30 says, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. That's an interesting statement again. For no one ever hated his own flesh. Um, and, and we understand that there, there are those that at times can can cut themselves, can be angry with themselves, etc. I think the, the expression, it's called anomic eris. It means that it is a timeless truth. It's like, you know, what goes up comes down. Like, it's like that there's ways of expressing some verbs that is meant to say that these are kind of the general proverbial principles. This happens and that happens, right? And what Paul is saying is, in the general, it is true that we don't hate our own flesh, we don't hate our bodies. We are pretty good to ourselves. It's a timeless truth in all humanity. In fact, we nourish and we cherish it. Just as Christ does to his church. He nourishes and he cherishes it. Well, I broke it. I broke it. Okay, we're back. Nourishes. The term is used also in Ephesians 6, 4, where it says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up. That's the term. Nourish them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So as Christ nourishes, he brings up from childhood the body of Christ. So we are to nourish, care for, bring up our wives in ways that, that, that are the discipline, that are the things of the Lord. Cherishes. The term is used again in 1 Thess 2 7. If you're in flock, you guys probably cover this. We were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of. The term means to cherish, care for her own children. This is the nature of the kind of love that Christ has for us, his church. 
and the nature of the kind of love that Christian husbands are to have for their wives because that's how Christ loved us. That last phrase, right? Coming back to, oh, then I put, I broke it again, right? Coming back to that last phrase in verse 30, because we are members of his body. I think that's kind of a, to me, it kind of takes a little bit of a, a you know, it goes off onto the side, right? It, it takes a side road here. Like, we, I thought we were heading down this path of Christ and what he's done, what he's done. And then when he says, because we are members of his body, I think it's meant to be kind of the general statement that she is a member of Christ's body who he nourishes and cherishes. You are a member of Christ's body whom he nourishes and cherishes. And we are all of us together corporately in the body of Christ, nurtured and cherished by Christ. So husbands, stand up in the body of Christ and be an example of him. Our call as Christian husbands, whether you are a Christian for a few years, a year, right, or for decades, our call is to represent Christ's love, not just to our wives, that first and primarily, yes, but then in the watching of your love relationship to your wife, the children see an imperfect human father who loves his wife imperfectly but sincerely as if the gospel mattered. And then the watching church observes and notices, oh man, he messes up, but he makes things right. He is a humble man who walks in the love and the attitude of Christ, cherishing and nurturing of his bride. Right, And so as it paints that picture, then it it's like the shouting of the gospel message in human relational terms. Watch and see imperfection, sin, forgiveness, and grace, and a leadership that is based not on what he demands or how he rules, but how he loves. That is the Christian husband's love. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the grace sufficient for us for the example given to us, Lord, in the gospel of Christ's love for us, his body. And Lord, help us to exemplify that, particularly the men of this room, if they are husbands, to exemplify the gospel. And if they are single men, to desire to be that kind of man, if it is your will, that we might walk in a way that honors you. In Jesus' name we pray.